You're in the water loop. Hey everyone, this is Travis with Waterloop. I want to tell you about the Flume Smart Water Monitor that I use at my house. Flume is the perfect device for tracking your water usage in real time with your smartphone. You can see exactly how much water you're using with showers, toilets, sinks, appliances, outside irrigation, any way you use water. Flume lets you set daily, weekly, and monthly water budgets. It also alerts you if there's excessive water use and if it detects a leak. In fact, Right when I hooked up Flume at my house, it alerted me of a leak. I was losing a gallon of water every six minutes outside of my water line. It turns out it had been there for months, and I was wasting ridiculous amounts of water and money. I'm not sure when I would have found that without Flume. Flume is super easy to install. You wrap a band around your water meter, just like you put a watch on your wrist. Connect to Wi-Fi, download the app, and you're all set. No plumber needed. Now you can use promo code WATERLOOP to save 15% off a of Flume at flumetech.com. With Flume, you'll never be surprised by a water bill again. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. I am here with Emma Robbins, director of the Navajo Water Project with Dig Deep. Emma, thanks for coming on. Really excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me and for rescheduling several <laughs> times with all of the recent events. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Not a problem at all. I know you're very busy. You've, you've talked about how much you travel uh, for your job. You know, you're at, the, at, at home or at the office, but then you're also spending a lot of time on the reservation or at conferences and all that. So I'm glad I could slide into your schedule. Yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, I want to start with you kind of describing um, the Navajo people, uh, Navajo lands, and just and what life is like there, and just kind of giving that that setting and, and background for people that probably don't know much about about Navajo and about the land. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, it's one that I forget a lot when I do talk about my work because. Growing up on the reservation, you always just sort of assume that everybody knows what you're talking about. Just like you being from North Carolina, you know, if you mention something in my mind, I'm like, where is North Carolina? And not because I don't actually know where it is, but just when you're so stuck in what you do from the day to day, it sort of takes everything up. Um, but yeah, so the Navajo Nation, or you'll sometimes hear it called Dine, Dineta. Um, Dine is the word that we use for ourselves. And we are a sovereign nation, which means we have our own government, uh, we have our own laws, we still do work, obviously, within the United States. And so we do have connections with the federal government, um, especially through our treaties. And we are located within the Four Corners area, and we're spread out through three states, so Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. And we have project sites in all of those three states. Mm. Um, and it can definitely get confusing. I think there are really little things that people don't think about apart from having water access issues or food desert issues, which are huge ones, obviously. But um, this time of year, for example, is really complicated because the Navajo Nation is on its own time zone, which would be mountain daylight, but Arizona stays on another time, mm. you know, they don't change. So it's like, this actually attributes to a lot of problems, wow. whether it's utility companies or intertribal relationships with the Hopi government. Um, it's really beautiful. It is mainly high desert. 
So it does get very cold there, which also affects things like water, um, road conditions. There at all times, I believe, are about 50% of the population unemployed. A lot of that has to do with the fact that we just don't have a lot of economic growth on the reservation. Um, We are pretty traditional overall, which is great. A lot of people still do speak Navajo, um, still follow the traditional ways, which really allows us to move forward as a nation positively. Um, You know, a lot of people still do things like herd sheep, have their own crops, um, living pretty remotely. I myself am from Tuba City, which is the largest town. And to give you an idea, it's about 8,000 people. Okay. Um, so we do have one of the only grocery stores. There are nine total. And so especially now with COVID, it's been a huge issue because there's just not enough food and water to go around. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think one thing that I always stress about the Navajo Nation is obviously there are issues of unemployment, pregnancy, alcohol abuse, teen pregnancy, you know, not a lot of education. Um opportunities in terms of college that's very easy a lot of people go to college but um you know we are a pretty resilient community as well and we do things like take our treaty very seriously um we do participate in local government so it's not all bad stuff Mm -hmm. and it's been really great growing up there and it's been really great being able to go home and work yeah and so you described where the, the Navajo Nation is, and it's mostly Arizona. I mean, it, right? Like the biggest chunk of the land is is in Arizona there, kind of uh, what north and east of the Grand Canyon, if people know where that is. It's kind of that whole corner of Arizona spilling over into New Mexico yeah. and Utah, right? Yeah. 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 I, w- I would say it's probably more in Arizona, but there is a pretty decent chunk in New Mexico. Okay. Um, Utah is sort of a little scrap. And then it's literally like just the four corners. Mm. You know, We just yeah. don't extend into Colorado. Yeah. Do you know how many like acres or square miles or anything? That I, yeah, I will definitely have to get back to you because <laughs> yeah, no I problem. always get my stats mixed up. I'm like 175, 300. But right. if we were a state, we would be the 10th largest. Ah. And Okay. Um, we'd actually be the size of West Virginia. Oh, got it. Got so it. it's it's a very large land mass. And you mentioned the city you're from has about eight thousand people. How many Navajo are there? Uh, you know, on the land. Than- on the reservation, there are a little bit more than three hundred. Um, no, I believe on the reservation there are one hundred and seventy-five thousand people, um, but total population of Navajos are about three hundred thousand. So you know, obviously more than half of our population lives on the reservation. Um, Again, a huge issue is just not having great census or data info. Um, But within the Navajo Nation is a little piece of land, which would be the Hopi Reservation. And that's right across the street from where I grew up. So um, sometimes people count that nation as our census. I think there are about 3,000 people there. But, you know, they're a totally different tribe. And they should not be counted together. They should work together, but not be counted together. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, all right. Well, thanks for giving some of that backstory there and that context and, and just understanding uh, for folks what we're talking about. So I really want to hear about access to safe drinking water uh, and sanitation. What is kind of the status? How would you describe that situation? Really great question. Um, You know, the statistics go up and down. So some entities like the Navajo Nation government, IHS, um, 
dig deep when we've done research, other institutions have said that it's anywhere between 30 and 40% of people that don't have access to running water. Um, and that would include just having indoor plumbing and also sanitation. So obviously not having bathrooms, but rather using outhouses. Some people call them latrines, but I've never heard that on the res until I started working at dig deep. So I always just say outhouses. Um, and you know, it's, it's a huge percentage of people. A large part of it has to do with the fact that we are so spread out because traditionally that's how we live. Um, towns like Tuba City, where I grew up, we had running water. I was very fortunate to have that, very fortunate to have an indoor toilet. Um, but the community that my dad is from, you mentioned the Grand Canyon, is just right there mm-hmm. at the heart of the Grand Canyon called Cameron, Arizona. And there, people don't have running water. A lot of people don't have running water. And so growing up, I always saw the two sides of it, you know, living in the quote unquote big city and then going to Cameron on the weekends. And Cameron and Tuba City are also near some of the largest Superfund sites. So there's a lot of uranium um, that sometimes goes into the water, but it's definitely in the air. And there's a lot of uh, naturally occurring arsenic as well. So the Navajo Nation has a lot of aquifers. There's a lot of water that's present in terms of groundwater, um, but that doesn't mean that it's safe necessarily. So there's one utility company called the Navajo Tribal Utility Authority that works on water. Um, Like I said, if it were a state, we'd be the 10th largest. So having one utility company is pretty mind boggling. Mm. Um, I feel like a lot of times I hear that they sort of get a bad rap but it's actually really important to recognize the important work that they've done because they're working with many populations that are spread out. Um, I think the hardest thing to see is when people don't have bathrooms because walking very far to outhouses can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. And that's something that people don't think about in the winter. You know, I mentioned it gets cold, it snows. Um, A lot of elderly people walking are not in safe conditions. I know for my grandfather who didn't have running water for most of his life, once he got it, that was one of the biggest things for us was the fact that he had an indoor toilet. Um, But, you know, a lot of times too, because people don't have a lot of income. If they do have running water, they might not be able to pay their bills. Um, the tribal utility authority does help out with that, but you know, again, there's only so many people that they can help out with. Um, and you know, as you know, most of the time to have running water, you need to have electricity, right? Unless it's like a gravity fed system, but you need to have a pump and a heater and a lot of people don't have electricity. And so it's both not having electricity and not having running water. And that's a huge issue because that impacts daily life altogether. Yeah. And so the, you mentioned that people don't have the sanitation side, you know, they don't have a toilet, how they deal with that. Mm-hmm. What, what happens if people don't have access to, you know, a tap in their house? How do they get their water? So uh, people haul water. Um, from various sources. When I was growing up, my grandparents and my family would come to our house to fill up either with our hose or they'd come inside and take showers um, and just, you know, wash clothes and get ready for the week to do different things. That was definitely a weekly thing. Um, They can go to watering points that the Tribal Utility Authority has so they can fill up there. The water is potable. 
Um, but then a lot of times people don't live close enough to relatives who have running water or to safe sources like NTUA's watering points or their chapter. You'll probably hear me say chapter a couple times. Um, the Navajo Nation is split up into 110 chapters. So those are our local governments. Um, and the chapter house is where everybody gathers for different community events where their elected officials meet. And so a lot of time chapter houses will also have safe water sources. But not everybody lives close to their chapters. Not everybody lives close to families with running water or the NTUA points that I mentioned. And so often those folks might go to unsafe sources that are intended for livestock or agricultural use, or they're just abandoned wells or windmills. We see this a lot that do have radon in them or are not safe to drink at all. And that's just one of those things where you know, there isn't like a posted list of tests that have been performed or the content of the water. But if that's what you've been getting for your whole life, you know, you, you might not know that. Yeah, sure, sure. Is there, what's the feeling about the situation with drinking water and sanitation? Is there a sense of frustration? Is there a sense of, um, you know, does it, does it create hardship? What's, what's it, you know, the feeling among the people? You know, for me personally, and a lot of people in my generation, I don't think we realize how messed up it is hmm. until we actually leave the reservation because it's sort of just a reality like, oh, my Nully, Nully means like paternal grandparents. Um, my Nully or my Masane, which means maternal grandmother, we always think, oh, it's something of our grandparents. Like that's just normal. Hmm. You know, that's how they live. My dad grew up in a one bedroom Hogan, which is a traditional Navajo home. He didn't have running water. For us, it's something that I think, I don't want to speak for everyone, but speaking with friends and my sisters, you just don't realize how messed up it is. Yeah. And as you start to leave the reservation, you realize, wait, we don't have a basic necessity that everybody else has. Um, I think for a lot of us, it's really upsetting to see our parents and our grandparents aging mm -hmm. and not have that capability to do something as simple as washing their hands. Um, I think now, especially there's a lot of concern and outrage because the big thing about COVID-19 is you need to wash your hands. Totally. Okay. But if you don't have running water in your house, you can't wash your hands. And you know, the way that I've seen people wash their hands is they'll fill up a bowl of water, um, you know, rub their hands in it with soap, wash it, and then rinse it off in another bowl. That's not really safe. You know, you're using this water over and over, but you don't have the water to spare. Yeah. So I think, you know, a lot of times it's not just about not having potable water in your home or sanitation. It's also that you don't feel like other people, mm -hmm. right? Whoever other people are, if they're people in your school, at your work, other Americans, other Native nations that have it, you know, if you can't wash your hair every day or every other day, whatever it is, like everybody else, you don't feel quote unquote normal. If you don't have clean clothes, like everybody else does, you don't feel good. And it can really weigh on mental health. And that's something that I see a lot mm. and a complaint that I hear a lot as well. And obviously water is definitely a women's issue as well, specifically in us being a matriarchal culture, you know, women being in charge, we are used to taking care of our families and our community members, whether that means something like cooking a meal or else holding family meetings to discuss certain topics, you know, we're also responsible for getting water generally. And so that really keeps women away from doing things a lot. I wouldn't say that's like the number one thing that I think about, but it's definitely an effect that I see and what other women on the res feel. Mm-hmm. And the situation with just not having 
a, a huge utility or lots of utilities or having the infrastructure. It's because, you know, this is this is not developed land. This is a yeah. r- rural place, right? And that's how it how it was and and when it became a reservation i'm sorry if i'm saying anything naive or incorrect right but it, no, not when at it all. became a reservation well there just wasn't infrastructure here there's there weren't a series of towns and all these roads and all these governments to come in and put it in place that's kind of why it's like this right yeah and i think you know it's definitely something with the federal government and the american people where if it's out of sight it's out of mind so hmm. You know, we're an hour and a half from a large town in Arizona, Flagstaff. And when I meet people from Flagstaff or talk to them, um, you know, that was the big town that we went to growing up to get groceries and, you know, to go to the dentist or orthodontist or whatever. And um, people there just don't realize that that's something that's going on. And it's mind boggling Hmm. that we're so close to a First Nations land area and people don't think about it. I think also with things like uranium, you know, the federal government pushed us onto this land. And then as soon as they needed things like uranium during World War II and moving forward, it was like, okay, now we care about this land. Like now we need to start going in there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like many rural communities in the U.S. where it's not like I have some vendetta against people in cities. Obviously, I live <laughs> in a city. Um, but I think people just don't realize it because they've never been to rural areas. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, of similar situations, I guess, in Alaska, you know, with the, the sure. Native Alaskans. And I know there's a lot of communities along the U.S.-Mexico border that are in a, a similar kind of situation just with that lack yeah. of infrastructure. All right, let's switch to solutions and positive okay. stuff here. Okay, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so what's the approach of the Navajo Water Project? How do you go about trying to address this? How do you go about trying to get drinking water access, safe drinking water, and the sanitation side? Um, so great question. I love that idea of talking about solutions because I think often we get so caught up in what the problem is. Yeah. And that's extremely important to discuss, but also really important to focus on the ways that we can solve these problems. So the Navajo Water Project has several facets we we have designed systems that are meant for off-grid families, so meaning people who probably will never get plumbing um, connections to main water lines or electricity, just because, as I mentioned, traditionally we live so spread out from each other um, that there might be like a homestead of several families, but it just doesn't make sense economically to install a water line when it's way the heck out there. It's like going to be millions and millions and millions of dollars. Everyone deserves to have running water. Everyone deserves to be hooked up to a line. But unfortunately, it's just not a reality. So coming up with this creative solution has been really great. What we do is for those families, we install a pretty basic cistern system. So there's an underground cistern tank, which is about 1,200 gallons. There's a series of plumbing. There's a pump. There's a water heater. There's a particle filter. And then a kitchen sink. And so one of our biggest missions is to make sure that everyone has hot and cold running water because hot water is important yeah. for, you know, obviously reason, obvious reasons. And so 
Um, that's one piece of work that we do in order to fill up those cistern tanks. We develop water truck routes Mm -hmm. and we always partner with a local community member, excuse me, local partner. Mm -hmm. Um, so whether that means another nonprofit that's working in the area or the chapters, as I mentioned, the local government, it's really important that there's community collaboration and it's not just, you know, last consent. It's how do we work with you? Who are the homes that we should install in first? What's the best trucking route? What are the roads like? Mm-hmm. Um, and so generally these tanks are filled up once a month. So that way everybody has running water. There's a lot of education that goes around it in terms of how to care for and maintain their systems. Um, a lot of the work that I do is word of mouth. So we might start installing these systems and then someone will say, well, my grandmother actually lives over the hill and she needs this water as well. And so um, other facets are helping people with bill pay. As I mentioned, with folks who are having economic hardships and they're not able to pay for their electricity or their water, mm. we assist with that. Generally, we'll do a split. So that way, you know, again, it's the idea of collaboration and not just coming in. Mm. Um, it's, you know, working on a Native nation is very different than working in other areas. And I think that's something that the organization as a whole has had to learn. It's something obviously that I've known growing up my entire life, but it's not just this copy and paste solution. So, you know, someone might say, oh, well, why don't you do rain catchers for drinking water? Okay, it doesn't rain that much on the (laughs) reservation. (laughs) Or, yeah, you know, people say, well, why do you do the cisterns underground? Because it freezes. There are just very specific reasons for these things. And um, so far of these systems, we've installed about 260. So in, like I said, Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, um, and bill pay, we assist with that mainly in New Mexico because other people just don't have the possibility to have running water in Utah, and Arizona. Um, and then we do things like assisting different community centers or schools to replace plumbing, to install water heaters. Uh, this is like my favorite project that I've ever worked on mm. on the reservation. And I always say it's probably the most important thing I've ever done in any career. Um, my background is actually in the arts, so it hasn't always been water work. That but, was gu- that was going to be one of my questions is like, how you got into this? Obviously you have the, the yeah. deep, long personal connection, but, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean, this is, you know, water and, and figuring out the funding and the technology and, and yeah. putting, putting it all together. It's complex stuff. So it's very complex. And, and that's why I think with the school that we did, you know, it's a special needs school and they had over 25 buildings, they were reporting um, water that was coming out black and stinky. Mm. And so what we did was we went in and replaced the plumbing. Uh, they had high levels of copper and lead just because they couldn't afford to do this on their own. Their water safe, their water source was totally safe. It was just internal things. And, you know, this is a school of adults and children who are special needs ranging from um, being moderately autistic to totally non-ambulatory mm. and having things like trach tubes and feeding tubes and really just working with them. And that, again, word of mouth, that was something where it's like somebody heard of something and so they told us and we researched it. But that's also sort of how I got involved in this work was um, my background has always been in the arts. I actually lived in Argentina for four years. Um, and I was doing research on communities there, um, that was happening, you know, the art movement happening after the last dictatorship. So 76 to 83. Um, 
And then when I moved back to the U.S., I went back to art school. I had done art school for a year in Chicago. Um, and I eventually started working in a gallery as director and then moved on over to another gallery. And during this time, you know, my family had told me that they had read articles about Dig Deep or the Navajo Water Project, which was in its super beginning stages when I first started. I think they had done one water installation, when one was, home water system. When was this, would you say? <laughs> Back in 2015. Okay. And I've now been with Dig Deep for four years. So um, it wasn't until I read an article in the New York Times about it that I reached out uh, to our CEO, George, and had said, you know, hey, I'm in Chicago. Here's a list of my credentials. Um, I'm also an artist and maker myself. And, you know, it was just sort of like, I, I can volunteer. I also have a lot of connections on the reservation if you need any help. And George wrote back and like several months later, they invited me to LA, dig deep to just meet with them. And they said, you know, we have an upcoming job. We think you'd be great for it. Would you just kind of keep your ears and eyes open? Um, we'll send you the information. And for me, I'm like, I'm extremely happy in my job. Like I would never leave it, you know? Um, but a lot of the work that I was doing prior was a lecture series. And in my own artwork, it's about living conditions on the reservation, including water. So there was sort of just this exact moment. I totally remember it was during Art Basel, which is a pretty big art fair in Miami. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening to these conversations about selling pieces of artwork and investment. And I'm like, this is not a good usage of my time. Wow. Yeah. So literally like that night, I'm not kidding. I got an email from Dig Deep saying, you know, they, that was when they invited me to LA and I had never been to LA and I was like, okay, I think probably the biggest part that was a really difficult move is, um, I had never driven. Mm. I was almost 30 and I got my license and now I've probably driven like 125,000 miles. Um, You're back a pro. And forth. Yeah. I'm a pro. I have an <laughs> F-150. I love my truck and oh, yeah. I have it because I have to haul water parts. Okay. That's, yeah. that's an amazing story. I, like when those moments happen in life, right? Where you, you're sitting there, you're thinking about something. You're like, ah, I, something else is pulling at me. And then that, yeah. that email comes too. That's, that's crazy. Amazing. Yeah, it's been good now. Yeah. And I can't believe it's already been four years. Yeah. It feels like it's only been like a couple months. Well, and I was going to ask about you know, specific success stories that really stand out to you. That one about the school, that's really uh, amazing. Is there anything, yeah. is there any, have there been any other moments, you know, accomplishments through this project the past four years or so that have just, you know, really stood out to you? For sure. I would say um, there's one community that's, it's a chapter called Navajo Mountain, and there's one area called Paiute Mesa. And it is the most beautiful place that I have ever been in my life. Mm. Um, my other family, my family from other parts of the reservation will be like, what are you talking about? But no, it's really beautiful. <laughs> um, but they have a very unique situation because they're split between Arizona and Utah and they are in three different counties and then they're on reservation land. And so because of that, there's always issues with funding for them. They're always pushed to the back burner they didn't get a paved road in a certain part of it, only a certain part, not the whole part, until 2014. And it's so rural that when the federal government was rounding us Navajos up for the long walk, which was, you know, our death march, essentially, mm -hmm. um, they couldn't get anybody there because it was so rural. And they were like, oh, it's not worth our time. And so people who live there have lived there forever. 
you know, like my family where we live, it's because we were relocated after the long walk. And it was really unique. Nobody did. They never thought they'd get running water there. Um, I worked very closely with Indian Health Service, who also does waterline connections and similar cistern systems. And um, this really great woman had reached out to me and said, you should talk to this community because they're pretty low on our list right now, not because they're important, but because we just don't have the funding or the means right now. And so we've now installed 18 systems there in technically the most rural part of the reservation and in the country, one of the most rural parts in the country. And it's just, it's amazing because it's really helping people out there, you know, and it's most of the people that live out there, it's just life is already so hard by living so rurally. And so that's been a really big success story as well. And I think also two other really big successes, which are kind of combined into one is we've done a lot of economic development on the reservation by creating jobs. You know, the people who work on our projects, I always give them such a big shout out because our water and solar technicians are the people who are actually installing these systems every day. And so everyone is from the community. Um, We have a 100% Diné or Navajo staff for the Navajo water project and on the reservation. Um, And a big success for me is that I've also elevated dig deep and the Navajo water project um, on the reservation to be a $15 an hour organization. And so that's been like a really big part of, of my career because I think, you know, you have to invest in communities. Yeah. How are, how are we going to like elevate ourselves if we don't have money? That's, sure. I mean, that's, sure. that's where we are right now. Yeah. I, I was curious about funding for the Navajo water project and dig deep. You know, you're, you're doing this, these incredible work, putting in systems, doing truck routes, all this kind of stuff. So how is the, how is the funding uh, put together to make all this happen? Yeah. Important question for nonprofits, right? Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's, I don't, you know, it isn't until recently that I've had a lot to do with the funding. Um, One of our, well, our director of development left to work on a political campaign and she had always been doing this stuff. Um, And then I helped when she left. And I mean, it was, it was really sad for me to have her leave, but um, I helped a lot with it. And so we get a lot of money from foundations, private donors, grassroots. Uh, we don't currently receive any government funds. Hmm. And a lot of that is just because things are so up in the air with government funding a lot of times, especially with um, current administration and current programs. And so for now, the Navajo Water Project sort of stays away from that just because we need to have like a constant source of funding. Um, last year, we like doubled in size and finances. So that was really exciting because we're able to help other people. Um, but I'm always really surprised at how much support, whether it's financial or in-kind donations that we get just from like everyday people. Wow. That's um, awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, it's that's amazing to hear about that growth. I mean, hopefully, kind of the continued exposure. I mean, I've I've saw dig deep in some reports last year, and I know you're kind of getting getting out at different conferences and different webinars. So hopefully, yeah. that we just kind of keep feeding into this. Yeah, um, it's um, it's been amazing to see people start to care about Native nations and the reservations because it's something that just is not reported on mm-hmm, often mm-hmm. and. I think a lot of times what I always really enjoy is when people ask me about water, 
Um, but then it also leads into other conversations about living conditions on the reservation and how to be a responsible ally, whether it's through funding or sharing that information with others. Yeah. So we've been really, really fortunate. So what do you think the, the future looks like for the Navajo Water Project and, and for the reservation as far as, you know, the water, the water efforts here and having, having people have access? I mean, just kind of continuing yeah. to chip away or... Do you, have, do, you yeah. have, do you have big goals or you want to get to certain targets or? Yeah. I mean, this is something that, you know, we struggle with a lot because although we've really grown in size, um, it's still a small org. And so we definitely try and get as much work done as possible. Um, I think a lot of times it's really hard to do things when you don't know what you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So again, not having a lot of data, um, I've been working a lot more closely with Indian Health Service and the Navajo Nation tribal government because we are able to exchange pieces of information. And again, like I said, as the example with the woman from Indian Health Service, her pointing out a community to me, that might not have been on my radar. So definitely still expanding the program. Um, meeting with community members is a huge part of my job and something I love. Um, and identifying key responsible um, community members who will make sure that the project is ongoing and sustainable because we don't want to start something up and then, um, you know, hand it off to a community and it, it just, they don't have the capacity to do that, which obviously there are a lot of things going on, but I think it's just, it's something that is growing so quickly and we've done a really great job at catching up with it, but it's like, mm. it's, <laughs> it's just growing so, so, so fast. Yeah, yeah, more more miles on that F one fifty for you as you travel around. She's falling apart. Uh, Truck is falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask you about a, a little different topic. They're certainly connected, but just kind of in toward yeah. the end here, and that's climate change. Um, yeah, you know, I, I think it's just it, it is pervasive everywhere, and I'm just wondering, you know, how it's impacting you know, Navajo nation, if it's something that, that people there talk about, if, if, you know, they're seeing tangible impacts and, uh, yeah, yeah. it's a, I mean, that's a super important question and, um, I'm just going to plug this in really quickly. Yeah, no problem. Um, super important question. And something that we do think about daily and that affects us is even today, you know, um, because of COVID, we have paused installations because we don't want to enter people's homes. Mm. They just identified the second case of COVID yesterday on the reservation. And um, again, perfect example is no running water, only a few grocery stores. Indian Health Service is not, you know, we're, we're, it's not the bad mouthing. It's just we're not super equipped to have a lot of sick people in hospitals. So sure. climate change. Um <laughs> Today, we had to have something really simple done, like a backhoe picked up because we are pausing installations and obviously we want to save money and make equipment available for other folks who might need it. Um, and the rental company was driving out to get it, but it's all of a sudden really unexpected uh, crazy storms. Mm -hmm. And that's not usual for us this time of year. Mm -hmm. So they're not able to get out there. Mm -hmm. um, and that seems like such a small thing, but whether changes like that impact us all the time because it puts a hold on the project mm. you know um road conditions get really bad we can't get out there with our trucks with our water truck um also you know it it makes it impossible just to get work done when we're working outside it's also one of those things where we talked about rain catchment some families in areas 
have had rain catchers in the past more than anything for their sheep or their livestock or crops, but they don't have that anymore. And so then they'll ask us to help with the water, but you know, we do drinking water for human consumption. And so we don't want to just leave somebody hanging. We want to help them out. If it's not raining anymore, then okay. It's like a really tricky situation. So in a way it's like, water is affecting the work that we do and it's just sort of this vicious cycle for yeah. sure it also it just gets so cold now in mm. so many areas mm. and so sometimes the systems freeze up or again it's just road conditions are too icy to to get onto yeah i think with climate change you know it's one it's this weather unpredictability and just these wacky swings and these crazy yeah. storms and intense precipitation like you're saying so it's not just like everything's getting warmer everything's just getting unpredictable and crazy. That makes unpredictable. Sense. Yeah. 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 Um, well, Emma, I really appreciate, uh, your time and, uh, I learned a ton. I'm grateful for it and I look forward to sharing uh, more about this with others. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I really appreciate the work that you're doing. So thank you so much for that. Yeah. Sounds good. Thanks. Talk later. Talk later. Bye-bye. Thank you to the sponsor of this episode, the Flume Smart Water Monitor that tracks your home's water use 24-7, alerting you to excessive water use and leaks. Use promo code WATERLOOP now for 15% off at flumetech.com. You're in the Waterloop. Water, 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 water.